0: And our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 14, picking up where we left off last week with verse 9 and continuing to verse 18. This too is printed in your bulletins for you or follow along in your own copy of God's Word. Romans 14, verse 9 through 18. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That's the reading of God's Word. Let's ask Him to bless it to us now. Father in heaven, as we come to the holy scriptures now, we pray that you would instruct our hearts through the ministry of your spirit and your word, even as the rain has been falling outside, that your word would not return to you empty, but it would succeed in the matter for which you sent it, that it would accomplish what you desire. May it work mightily in each of us, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, we used the Nicene Creed to affirm our faith together. Um, there are many other creeds, even in the church. We have the Apostles' Creed, and there's an Athanasian Creed. And in, uh, if, if you've ever served in the United States Army, you know that there is a Soldiers' Creed. And every soldier learns it. And there are a few brief statements out of the Soldiers' Creed that have come to be known as the warrior ethos. The warrior ethos. And maybe some of you are saying ethos. What's an ethos? An ethos, one kind of brief definition of an ethos or an ethos. Maybe you're accustomed to saying it ethos. I say ethos. Um, It's a characteristic spirit of a community as manifested in its beliefs and aspirations. A characteristic spirit of a community. For instance, the church or the U.S. Army. And so within that soldier's creed, the warrior ethos goes like this. The soldier's creed, warrior ethos. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. That's the warrior ethos. The last week, as we were looking at the previous verses in Romans 14, we learned that we are not our own. We learned that we serve a king whose kingdom is within us. And we'll see that to a greater extent today. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are a part of the kingdom of God, and there is a kingdom ethos as well. I don't claim that this passage that we're looking at this morning is the sum and substance of it, but there is a kingdom ethos that we ought to seek to cultivate, and according to which we ought to seek to live, because we're not our own. We are His and part of the kingdom ethos of the kingdom of God is that the law of Christ's kingdom is that his people love one another. As we sing in that, one of those Christmas songs we hear every year, his law is love. The law of Christ's kingdom is that his people love one another. You see an outline in your bulletin, Shows the three points we'll be considering this morning. The first is that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Judge of all. Secondly, you and I are called to love one another. And then finally, God's kingdom is spiritual. It is a spiritual kingdom. First of all, Jesus Christ is Lord and Judge of all. The passage begins by saying, For to this end Christ died and lived again. And in a certain sense, it's Reflecting back on the preceding verses, where we learned that we are His while we live, and we are His when we die. We belong to the Lord, living or dying, and Christ has made that so through His atoning death. He purchased us, the scriptures say, with His precious blood, and now we are His. He purchased us through His victorious resurrection. Death no longer has sway or power over Him, and it no longer has power over us either if we are in Him. So through Christ's death, through His resurrection, He ransomed us. He bought us and became our Lord. Now, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute. I thought He was Lord of lords and King of kings. I thought He was already our Lord. Well, yes, He always has been, even The passage that we opened our service with from Psalm 90. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. And that includes we have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that sense, and in that divine sense, Jesus has always been Lord. He never became Lord. He has had a sort of lordship over His creation simply because He created it. That's true. But He takes on a new and special lordship having accomplished redemption. And I think it has to do, this is just an aside, but I think it has to do with his human nature. Because when he took flesh, what was he lord over? Well, in the flesh, nothing really, was he? He was the son of a poor carpenter. He was an itinerant rabbi in his adulthood and his ministry on earth. But after he rose again, after he died shedding his blood for the sins of his people and then rose victoriously from the grave, then he came to his disciples and he proclaimed this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's a statement that in some sense he was not able to make prior to his resurrection. But through his death and through his resurrection, he became our Lord He is the ascended Christ. We we professed it together today. We affirmed it. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And you remember in Psalm 110, verse 1, where we have, we, we get to listen in on the Father speaking to the Son, and He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand. And so he takes on that new aspect of lordship after he ascends and is seated. And it says that he is Lord both of the living and the dead. To this end, he died and lived again. Well, why does it say it in that order? Well, I think it speaks of those in ages past of whom we sang. We sang our God, our help in ages past. We weren't there, but we have forefathers foremothers, forebears in the faith, and He was their God, their help. And now He's ours. So He's Lord of the dead in that sense. He's Lord of Adam. He's Lord of Noah. He's Lord of Abraham. He's Lord of David. He's Lord of Augustine of Hippo. He's Lord of Bernard of Clairvaux as we tour the centuries of the Christian church. He's Lord of Luther, Lord of Calvin, Lord of Isaac Watts, Lord of Jonathan Edwards, Lord of B.B. Warfield, and he's Lord of every one of you. All those people whose names I just mentioned have died. Their lives here in this present age have terminated. Their souls are made perfect in glory and they behold their savior. But they all died, you see. You are living, and Jesus Christ is Lord of both, the dead and the living. And as Lord, he's also judge. Look with me again at verse 10 in our text. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. <clears throat> now you compare that to Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't think it's talking about two different judgment seats. The judgment seat of God is the judgment seat of Christ. He is the one to whom it has been given and granted to judge the living and the dead. Didn't we profess that together just a minute ago too? The Father has vested Jesus Christ with the authority to judge. Look with me at John chapter 5. John 5 verse 22. Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Skip down to verse 27 in that same chapter. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So that's what the Father has done in behalf of the Son. He's given him authority to judge. And then we, that's why we see in verse 11. Of our text. As I live, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, just like we did with that other passage just a moment ago, let's compare that with a different passage of Scripture Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you like. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 10, where it says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we read in Isaiah or in Romans that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that bowing in homage and that confession will be rendered to Christ. Christ Jesus our Lord. He is Lord and he is judge <clears throat> now when we come to verse 10 there's a rebuke there so once again Paul under the inspiration of the spirit he's addressing quarreling members of a congregation you have got people who are judging one another and you've got people who are despising each other and almost like I, I tend to picture a, a referee maybe on a soccer pitch or on a f- football field and two players are tangled up in some kind of scuffle, and the ref gets in there and gets between them. And then he starts to address these players. That's sort of what Paul's doing here. He's got a, he's got a brother here whose conscience is strong, and he feels that he can eat meat. And then he's got a brother over here whose scruples are more severe, and he doesn't feel like he can't eat meat. And they're bickering. And so he's saying to the one, why are you passing judgment on your brother? And you, why do you despise your brother? So if we carry forward the the soccer analogy, he gets a yellow card and he gets a yellow card, right? It's like what we saw in chapter 3, excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 14. That was a long time ago, but uh, verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed them both. And here's Paul mediating between these quarreling athletes, quarreling parties. He officiates between two such brothers. Now, I don't know. I guess most of you probably are football fans. Do you know how in American football, sometimes if both sides, offense and defense, simultaneously commit some uh, foul or infraction, sometimes the is offset, right? If you're, you've seen that, right? Depending on the conditions and what happens and when it happens and if yardage is gained or not. Uh, the ref will come out and say, you know, such and such on this player, or such and such on this player, uh, penalties offset, replay the down. The thing is, when we by our uh, judgment of one another or by despising one another Uh, Incur penalties. The penalties in, in God's kingdom never offset. They never offset. They always compound. And part of the reason for that is because we're not on opposite teams, you see. We are on the same team. I don't know if you've ever... I guess this mostly happens in... In practices, not so much in games. But have you ever been at a game where members of the same team started scuffling or arguing together on the field? And and if you if that's your team, you're thinking, guys, don't start this. Come on, you're one team. You're the same team. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to Christ's church: You're on the same team. Don't despise your brother. Don't judge your brother. We're told here that we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Let me emphasize that. We will all give an account of ourselves to God. You won't give an account for your brother. You will give an account for you. There was a great Southern Presbyterian minister by the name of William Plummer, and he said. The point of this statement, refer you back again, um, we will all give an account of ourselves. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And Plummer wrote, the point of the statement is this, we shall not give an account for each other, but we shall give an account for ourselves. This is universally true. There is no exception to the statement. Instead, therefore, of judging others, we should do well to be preparing to give up our own solemn and final account. Now, on your outline in the bulletin, there's a fourth section that says application, but I'm sprinkling some of the application throughout the sermon. So if you want to write this down, write it there under application. Here's one way we apply this text. Expend your time and energy not in trying to be spiritual police over one another. But expend your time and energy in cultivating fruit of the Spirit in your own life and preparing to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord and judge of all. And then we come to our second point, which is we are called to love one another. You knew that. Made it the second point of my sermon, and maybe you're thinking, I know this already. I've heard it a thousand times. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Well, are you doing it? That's the question. I think of all the evidence we find in God's Word that you and I are fallen and depraved, one, some of the most clear evidence is the simple fact that God, he, he has to keep saying over and over again to us throughout the word, love one another, love your neighbor, love your brother. Why would he have to keep repeating that if we got it? Think of the little book of First John. You know, John's second and third letters are respectively the... Uh, second to last second to shortest and f- shortest books in the entire bible old or new testament second john and third john first john's pretty short too just 5 chapters and they're pretty short chapters for the most part how many times in first john does the apostle admonish us to love one another just in that short little book maybe this afternoon like i said it's not a long book This afternoon, read 1 John and take note of how many times the apostle says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And so on. When the apostle Paul is writing to the Galatians in chapter 5 of his letter, he speaks about the works of the flesh. And what he says about the works of the flesh is they're evident, they're obvious. And he lists a bunch of them. And then he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is And what's the first thing? Love. Love. A Pharisee came to Jesus to test him. He says, teacher, which commandment is the greatest? He didn't ask, give me the number one and number two. But Jesus gave him the second, even though he didn't ask for it. The greatest commandment, of course, is to love God. He says, and a second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, we could go cover to cover in God's word from Genesis to Revelation and anywhere you find any moral requirement placed upon us regarding how we treat each other, the sum of everything, it all comes down to love. And so we have an example of how we're to love one another in our text today. Look with me again at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Notice he says, let us not pass judgment, but rather let us decide now, the word in your ESV Bible that's translated decide there is actually a different form of the same word for past judgment. It's based on the, the Greek word krino, which means to judge. And where we read decide in our English Bibles, it's just a different form of that word judge. And the way it's, it's, it's an example of how even the Scripture writers sometimes would, would craft words to get a point across but like the, the King James version, if, you're, if you have one or if you happen to be looking at one now, it renders it a little bit more literally because it says, but judge this rather, where ours says, but decide. Let us not pass judgment, but judge this, using that same Greek word or translating it more literally. But what it means is decide. And that's why some of the uh, newer translations clarify it in that way. Decide on this. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but instead use your powers of judgment to make this determination. I'm determined to love my brother. I'm determined not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in his way. That's a strict matter of practice. that we ought to adhere to. Look at the way it's stated. Rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Did you notice in that warrior ethos four phrases, the first one has the word always and the other three have the word never. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. Part of the Christian ethos is I will never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, Paul brings up these facts of the matter, we could say, and he's probably anticipating objections, arguments, <clears throat> and so he says in verse 14 I know, I know. And I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is clean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. All Right? He goes back to the matter of food and drink, of abstaining or partaking, of uncleanness. And he says, first of all, nothing is inherently unclean. He wrote something similar to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. You see that? Nothing is to be rejected. Everything God created is good. It's not unclean. He says, I know that. Paul knew it just as well as anyone. But the second half of the verse is another fact and that is, if somebody thinks it's unclean, for that person, it is. Why? Because their conscience tells them that it is. And this brings up the issue and the very, very important matter of conscience. <clears throat> One of our founding fathers, James Madison, wrote, conscience is the most sacred of all property. Martin Luther, when he was on trial at the Diet of Worms, said to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So if your conscience has convicted you of something, then you have to follow your conscience. It's always important that we be educating and strengthening and training our consciences according to the word of God. But if you think something's unclean, then to you it is, in fact, unclean. And so... Here's another word of application. I don't like to keep recycling the terms weak and strong, but the fact is a person who has um, more severe scruples about something, the Scriptures define that person in some sense or other as the weaker brother or the person whose conscience is weak. And here's an application for that person, anyone who's in a situation where they think, I just can't do this, it's not right. To go against your conscience is neither right nor safe, just as Luther said. So if something is unclean in your eyes, then don't partake of it. Just don't. Don't get yourself in a situation where you think, you know, I feel like this is unclean, but I know my brother says it's just fine. And so I'm going to allow my conscience to be governed by him. Don't do it. But then to the strong, the one whose conscience is strong, whose scruples are not as strict. The application for you is a little bit more in-depth. So listen. <clears throat> you must live so as to protect the conscience of your brother. It's your duty. It doesn't mean live like you're walking on eggshells all the time. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy your liberty. But what it means is don't flaunt your liberty. Be conscious of and be sensitive to the scruples of others. And if you like to smoke a cigar once in a while, and you know your brother or your sister thinks smoking cigars is sin, then don't talk to them about cigars. Don't hand them off your old copy of Cigar Aficionado. Don't invite them over for a smoke be sensitive. It's not living as a hypocrite. It's not living as a hypocrite unless you say you don't do something that you actually do. But you can be sensitive, you can be discreet, and that's your duty. Verse 15, look at it with me again. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. This is love to protect your brother's conscience. Now look at the end of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I wondered if that uh, struck any of you as a little bit uh, puzzling. Maybe it raised a question in your mind. Maybe you're thinking, is it possible for my actions to sabotage another person's salvation? Is that what this is saying? Destroy my brother, destroy the one for whom Christ died? We always have to interpret Scripture in the context of all other Scripture. And from what we know of all the rest of Scripture, we know and can say with confidence that destroy in this context cannot mean bring about salvation or cause someone to lose their salvation. That cannot be what it means. So we have to figure out what destroy does mean here. I think that we didn't get to verse 19 yet. We will next time I have the opportunity to preach on a Sunday morning. But look at verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Upbuilding or edification. Understand destroy in verse 15 in the context of upbuilding in verse 19, you cannot save anyone by anything you do. There is one Savior. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is salvation in no one else. You can share the gospel with people. You can urge them to come to Christ. But you can't do the work. You can't save anyone. But you can edify them. You can, using your gifts, build them up. You can encourage them. And in the same way, you can't unsave anyone. But you can tear down. You can discourage. You can be a hindrance. Brothers and sisters, we're called to love one another. And as the text says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But then finally, in verses 16 through 18 in particular, we see that God's kingdom is spiritual. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke extensively about the kingdom of God. Sometimes he used the alternate term, the kingdom of heaven. But he spoke a great deal about God's kingdom. Many of his parables, we call the kingdom parables because they are used by Jesus to, make, to explain principles of the kingdom and to teach things about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God two of the essential traits of the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven are that the kingdom is present it's here it's among us and number 2 it is invisible it's present in the sense that John the Baptist preached it and Jesus preached it. They preached, repent because the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. It's here. Jesus told some of his hearers, the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. In Luke 17, starting in verse 20, being asked By the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or we could translate that, it is within you. And some versions render it that way. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. It's invisible. It's present, but it's invisible because it's internal. It's spiritual. So when Jesus was being tried by Pontius Pilate and the accusation, the worst they could come up with against Jesus was, he said he's the king of the Jews. So Pilate says, so you're a king? And Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom isn't of this world. You can't see it. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 3, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We see it, and in a sense, we see it even with our physical eyes. If you just look around the room, here's the kingdom. Here's an expression of the kingdom. But in its essence, it's invisible, and it's spiritual. And because it's spiritual, eating and drinking aren't essential to the kingdom of God that's what he says the physical things the earthly things we who are citizens in Christ's kingdom in God's kingdom in the kingdom of heaven now already we partake of physical things we live here in a corporeal physical existence but the kingdom is not physical It's not a matter of eating and drinking, the text says. It's a matter of righteousness. It's a matter of peace. It's a matter of joy in the Holy Spirit. These are inward graces. These are spiritual graces. They don't pertain to your mouth. They don't pertain to your stomach. They pertain to your soul. Now, I did want to stress and emphasize something. Jesus is, right now, the Lord and King of all the earth. Presently, but even as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, Presently, we do not yet see everything in subjection to our great Lord and King, do we? No, we see all kinds of very sorry things going on all around us and all throughout the world. This kingdom over which he does reign is not yet fully and visibly in subjection to him. But at the end of the age, when this passing world is done, in the words of that hymn, all evil will be subdued, all of Christ's enemies will be destroyed, and then in the new heavens and the new earth, his kingdom will be fully revealed, it will be fully visible. And all of us will be fully and joyfully subject to Christ, as will everything in the new heavens and the new earth. And until then, we have to walk by faith, not by sight. Until then, we keep in mind that the things that are seen, this building, the trees, everything you look around and see with these eyes of flesh, the, the visible things, the things that are seen, Jesus says, are transient. The things that are invisible the things that are unseen those are the things that are eternal and that's motivation to us to live according to this kingdom ethos and when we do living according to the kingdom ethos in other words living according to love it adorns our testimony verse 18 says whoever thus serves christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. It's certainly acceptable to God in the sense that when we're doing that, we're living according to His commandments. We're seeking to please Him through grateful obedience to our Savior. And it's approved by men even. Not always. We know that this world hates Christ, hates His church. But Jesus told us, didn't He, that This is how people are going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So when the watching world sees you loving your brother, loving your sister, Jesus says that's how they're going to know that you're mine. And when Paul gives us that list of the fruit of the Spirit, which included peace and joy, And the the sum of which is righteousness. So you've got righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, I should say. When he gets to the end of that description of fruit of the Spirit, he says what? Against such things there is no law. The world can throw false accusations against you, but if you're living according to the fruit of the Spirit, man can't help but approve so when the church looks at us, when the church looks—excuse me—when the world looks at us, when the world looks at you, when the world examines your relationship with your brothers and sisters, what does the world see? What's it going to see, and what impression is that going to give the world? Do they see us bickering? Do they see Christians busy judging each other, despising each other, or do they see us loving each other? There is a characteristic spirit of faith in our, community, in our faith community. Characteristic spirit, spirit, that ethos, we could call it. As manifested in our beliefs and our aspirations. We could call it the Christian ethos. And one of the most important and prominent aspects is to love one another. It's Christ's commandment that we do so. That's how we apply this text. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ will give us grace to do it each and every day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. We thank you that through him we can live lives that are pleasing to you. And so please, Lord God, help us more and more to love one another. Help us less and less to judge one another. Help us resolve never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance before our brother or sister. Lord, let this be our practice in our homes, in, in our congregation, in our lives. Give us grace unto these things and may it all bring glory to the glorious name of our Savior Jesus Christ. For in his name,